We are in the middle of Echo. We're in the middle of a series, a short series, looking at uh, the vision for City Church, and we are basing uh, uh, this series in Acts chapter 11. So we've been uh, looking at reaching, uh, restoring, and resourcing, and we don't just pick those words out of the sky. Actually, those words and those concepts, those ideas, are very much in the Bible. And they are in this story that we're going to read today. So if you can find Acts chapter 11, I'm going to pray and then we will read the passage together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you speak to us, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you, you're a God who breaks the mold. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, Lord, you see us differently from everybody else. Lord, thank you that you see us full of hope and faith. Thank you for your power at work in each one of us. Thank you that you're committed to changing us from one degree of glory to another, making us like Jesus, so that we would take this restoring message to Bristol and beyond, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for including us in your plans and purposes. It's such an honor to be part of your expanding kingdom, part of your church, Lord. Thank you. We don't take these things lightly. We're grateful. We're so thankful to you. And now we ask, Lord Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, come and help us in your word today. Help us to understand what it's telling us. Help us, Lord Jesus, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, we want to really be followers of Jesus by doing what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 19. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw that the grace of what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to be true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were called Christians first, in Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine which would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is one of the rare insights into church life uh, in the early church, you don't get a lot of narrative around what was it actually like to be in the church. You get a lot of letters written to churches in response to a problem or maybe in response to a question or a number of questions. Uh, you don't see the question often, and so you just get the answer. Uh, and, and this is a rare moment where you say, oh, this is what it was like. This is how it worked for them. And more than that, these are some of the attitudes and some of the things that they, were, uh, they found important, some of the things they focused on. And so last week, Ben was looking at this passage and saying, look how this church was committed to reaching out. 
Do you see, and we saw, of course, how uh, across this diverse city, uh, the church in Antioch reached and was committed to reaching into every part of the city to see God move and the gospel spread. That's how we want to be. And today we're going to look at the issue of restoration. Now, the whole Bible actually is a, a story of God's restoring work. God is a God of restoration. And the first pages, of course, of the Bible, we see God creating something good and glorious and wonderful. And we see through those uh, early passages of Genesis, God creates and then said, it's good. And what he made is a good creation. And very quickly then, after that, we see the terrible falling into sin and we see destruction entering our world. And what was good is, was broken. And we see that uh, in the planet itself. And we see that in the lives of the people that God made. And of course, that's uh, very much in the news, Extinction Rebellion are reminding us of that daily. And actually, we should take careful note of this. This is God's planet. It belongs to him. God is going to restore it one day. But actually, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. We are tenants of something that he owns. If you are borrowing something from a friend, you take care of it. If you're staying in a friend's house, you'll take particular care. You wouldn't, they wouldn't expect it to be trashed when you got home, when you, they got back. We are tenants of God's world. We should take care of what he's made um, as his children. But the heart of what was broken and what was destroyed, or what began to be destroyed, was a relationship. Adam and Eve had enjoyed fellowship with God. It says, even after they'd sinned, that, that God came looking for them in the cool of the day. There was there's something about that picture of God walking with his people. And we see that relationship is broken, and they are cast out from his presence, and we get a world a bit like we have today, with people who don't, who are born not knowing God, not understanding about what it is to have a relationship with him. And then we see through the Bible, we see story after story of people that God is drawing back, the restoration of what was broken. It's a story of restoration. Actually, at the end of the Bible, right at the end, we start at the beginning, at the end in Revelation 21, God says this, Behold, I am making everything new. This is his plan to restore all things. It's who he is and what he does. And God's desire for us now is that our our work of restoration is that people would know God, that we would help people believe, help Bristol believe in the risen Jesus. And not just believe in as a concept, but as a relationship, that they would know God and be known by him. So that heart of the problem is what really is in focus here, that people lost connection with God. It was broken and part of God's punishment was to put them out of his presence. And then the stories of the Bible we see time and again, different characters, many of which we've looked at over the years here. We see God bringing people into a relationship with him. We see Moses in a burning bush. We see, we see Gideon meeting an angel, even when he's hiding from his enemies. We see David, an unlikely son. We see Joseph, a spoilt child. And we see them brought into, all from different backgrounds, brought into a relationship with God that they didn't inherit from their parents, something new that happened. We see it in the stories, and we see it in the prophets too. The prophets prophesied these things. A few weeks ago, we said, we talked about God who God is a God who brings streams in a desert. This is who he is. He brings this parched land, suddenly rejoices. How? Because God's a God of restoration. This is what he does, and we see it also here in the prophet Joel, and I'll read this to you. I, and this is a famous, I, I chose this one because it's famous, we often quote it. 
often misquote it. Uh, I will restore to you the years that the, the swarming locusts have eaten. And we, we often quote that. You might have heard it on the radio from time to time. Actually, this was a, a result of, of Israel turning their back on God and God allowed, as it were, the locusts to come and strip the land of food. I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary with locusts who just kind of sweep through what is kind of rich pasture land and it's bare. And often you see it with on, on sort of sweet corn. It's just stripped bare. I've seen that a few times. And God said, I'm going to restore what was lost, what has been eaten. I'm going to, because why? Because God is a God who restores. This is who he is. It's what he does. That promise there in Joel was as a result of them repenting. They turned back to God, and that's what brought the restoration. Because God knows something more than we know. We think the problems that we have are the pressing issues, and for them in that passage there in Joel have been, what about the food, God? And for us it might be, what about, and you could add, whatever it is today that you're thinking about. What about this? And God says, there's a bigger deal here. There's something more fundamental. There's something worse than the thing that you think. And that is the restoration of your relationship with God. And even in those Old Testament days, often God would use physical lack and difficulty and challenge to bring them back into relationship with him. Because that was the, that was the real issue. That was what was first broken and what caused everything else to be broken was that breaking of a relationship. And the story of the gospel, the story, of course, of Jesus, is that he came to restore, he came to show us that we could know God. That God was there in the street, in the marketplace, in the temple courts. There he was. People could just go and talk to him. And by his Holy Spirit, we can do the same. And through his word, we do the same today. That's the story of helping Bristol believe. That's who, that's how. That's what we ha- we're asking of God, that he would help us to do that. This This restoration heart, this understanding of what the gospel is, was right in the middle of this church in Antioch. It's who they were and what they believed too. We have something in common with them. We'd like to have more in common with them, them, I guess. But there it was, right in the heart of who they were and what they were about. And in the middle of the story that we read, we find this character, Saul. We may know something of Saul's story. We may not, I suppose. Saul was originally a Pharisee, like the religious police. Sometimes we joke around the fashion police, don't we? Like, they're a fa- you know, why can't I wear this? Seems like the fashion police are out. And, but imagine the religious police out, knocking on your door, checking you've done your Bible reading that day, seeing how much you've prayed, that kind of thing. Pretty miserable. But they, these would go far beyond that. They'd be checking that you've been tithing all of the herbs out of your garden, for instance. And they'd be all that. That's the kind of things that they were about. And they would do it by example, but they would also do it with great personal pride. In fact, they were strict and graceless and proud. And in all of their law keeping, they had missed the grace of God. And so it was no surprise that when Jesus turned up, the Pharisees didn't recognize him. Because all they saw were keep the rules. Got to make God happy, keep the rules. What Jesus came to demonstrate was that Jesus has kept the rules because he knows we can't. And we find our life in him and not in rule keeping and law keeping. And so Saul was this Pharisee. In fact, he was kind of champion of the Pharisees, as it were. He was chief. He was a a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was very zealous for his cause. And there he was. In fact, he was, we read in Acts chapter 7, there he was when, when this uh, Stephen, this, we, we read it in the, in, in the passage, when Stephen was, was martyred, he was stoned to death. This young man 
preaching Jesus in Jerusalem, just enjoying God's grace for himself, just the wonder of it. If you've never quite grasped God's grace, um, that might be a mystery to you, but if you have, you'll know. My goodness, he loves me and I've done nothing to deserve it. And when that goes in here, it changes everything. And it had done that for this young man, Stephen. And Stephen was telling the truth of that to his fellow countrymen there in Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, the Pharisees and those around are hating him for it. Because it meant that, well, if you can get to God just through Jesus, then our entire lives are kind of pointless. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Religion had no place anymore because Jesus was in the marketplace. And they began to understand it. And they stoned Stephen to death. And there it says, was Saul looking after the coats as they stoned this young man to death. But this story is about the complete restoration of Saul. Saul, who was the worst of his kind. Saul, who was giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. Saul then went on, of course, to persecute the early church. And by that, he would try and find Christians and, and, and do what they had tried to do to Jesus. They, they would try to arrest them and bring all sorts of accusations against them. They wanted to stop this wretched Jesus movement before it got out of hand. And that's what his job was. And in Acts 8 and 3, we read this. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. That was his job. Nice job, Saul. That's what he did. It was on one of these trips uh, to Damascus that Saul met the risen Jesus. And a blinding light fell from his horse, a voice from heaven saying, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus. Whoa. And his world is changed forever. The original Damascus Road experience, that's where it came from. I'm sure you know that, just in case you didn't. That's where it comes from. This arresting in a moment. It says he fell from his horse. He's, he goes blind from the light and he hears the voice and he turns to Jesus. Saul is, as you can imagine, transformed. It's quite a moment for someone for that to happen. That's why it's called the Damascus Road experience. It's when someone just is changed in a moment and we're like, wow, I had, I had a moment like that and this is the original one. And so Saul is transformed and immediately, almost immediately, he starts to preach Jesus which must have confused his fellow Pharisees, to say the least. Someone pitches up who last week was trying to arrest you lot, and here he is standing here preaching to you from the Bible. You'd, be, you'd have some questions, I'm guessing. You're wondering about that. I'm sure you would, and so you should, I guess. But it's not long as that begins to happen that Saul gets into trouble himself, and he uh, comes uh, into focus uh, for the religious authorities, and they're after him. And the early church, and again, you, you, as we got to know this guy, imagine him here, we'd be excited by, oh, my goodness, what's happened to this guy? And then suddenly we find the police are after him. And Jerusalem church decides that he's in, he's in danger for his life. And so they sent him home. They sent him back to Tarsus. That's where he came from. They sent this guy, they sent him home. And that's really the life. We don't even know how long he's there for. It may, it's a number of years, maybe four or five years. The Bible doesn't really tell us. Not quite sure. A number of years, but there he's, he's gone. And we don't hear about him again until the passage I read to you. Until we find this happening. We find Barnabas, he went to look for Saul. Barnabas went to look for Saul. Barnabas, Barnabas' name means something. 
Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. Barnabas went to look for Saul. In, in, in the Bible, names are much more important than the names uh, we choose. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have spent a lot of time, I'm just aware that there's parents having babies all over the place and naming their children. I'm sure you've been careful. We were too careful about the names we chose. But here in the Bible, we find uh, a lot more energy and effort into the names that people were called. And Barnabas is called son of encouragement, and he was true to his name. He went to look for Saul. We're talking about restoration today, and we're going to look at some pictures in a moment. But the flip side of the restoration coin is this, encouragement. We're going to look at this. Let's put the picture up, shall we? It's there already. This is, um, the, uh, this is a panel from the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo. And this is, this is that panel through the restoration process. And uh, the top left, you barely see anything. It's like you hardly see the shape at all. But as the restoration continues, you see it coming through to, its, to being restored to its former glory. You see it being put back to how it might have been. In fact, some would say it was, it's more vibrant than, it, than the original was. Um, and there's arguments about that. Of course, no one can really know that. Um, but do you see the, what's dramatic in that process? And we might look at that and think, well, that seems really complicated. And, I, I, you know, I wouldn't fancy doing that and, and think, well, maybe this restoration lark isn't really for me. And then we realize the flip side of the restoration coin is this, it's encouragement. It's like the gateway attitude, as it were, <laughs> to restoration is encouragement. And we see that because we see it here in the life of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas saw something. He saw something. He, he, he realized there's something yet... To, to come out, and he encouraged it out of Saul. And we see how that happens in a minute. He coaxed it out of him. He brought him into a place where that gifting, that call of God upon Saul, would mean he became Paul the evangelist, and the world has never been the same since. And as a result of what Barnabas did and what Barnabas believed in his seeking after Saul, the church got on mission like never before, and it's not stopped since that day there in Acts 11. It's not stopped since then. That was the moment, really, where we understood something about God's desire and heart to reach out and to reach further. And it happened because someone, Barnabas, believed in somebody else, believed in the restoration of someone who for years had really been forgotten. That's, that's actually what fathers do not really in my notes, but fathers, what do fathers do? Fathers do lots. Fathers provide and protect and do all sorts of things. But this is what fathers do. Fathers believe more about their children than their children believe about themselves. And then they encourage it out of them. That's what fathers do. If you're aspiring to be a father, if you are one, fathers do many things. That is one of the things fathers do. If you want to be a father, if you want to be a father in the church or in the kingdom of God, do that. See with the eye of faith, see something that others don't, and seek to draw it out, encourage it out, until you see it in its full glory. God does that with you. God does that with character after character after character in the Bible. Others didn't see anything, and God sees something, and he draws it out. Why? Because he's a God who restores. That's what he does. He does it, and he does it extraordinarily well. 
So Barnabas looks to encourage Saul to his full potential. And as he does that, he's baking that attitude into the church. How do I know that? We're talking about it today. He bakes it into church, bakes it into the kingdom. That's how it's to be. We're to be a people who believe in the restoration of others, who believe that God is a restoring God. And, and we do that how we start by being a people of encouragement. That's the, that's, as I said, that's the easy, that's the starting point. That's how it works. That's how we work towards restoration. We look at the picture, we think, I can't do that. Well, you can do this. You could begin by encouraging others to begin to become all that God has and is in them. And we would, and I would, and as elders, we've just been away for two days with elders, I'll say this on behalf of all of us. We long for this attitude in the heart of City Church. That this is who we are. There's something about, about the culture of a place. You come in and you kind of feel it, don't you? You're not quite sure. It's hard to define sometimes, but you feel it. And we want, and I think, it, I think we are, but I would love, love, and we would love more of that amongst us. That we believe in the power of God to restore, to look at the unlikely, the unpromising, and the unlovely. And to draw them into all that God has for them. That's, that was Saul. That's just exactly who he was. He was unlikely. You know, he was unpromising. And he was very unlovely. But God reached out and drew him in. And Barnabas saw what God was doing and got on board and encouraged him into all he could be in God. Those early believers, they must have looked at Saul afraid and suspicious. But God had a magnificent plan. God's going to bring people to us from all kinds of places in Bristol. We're going to look at them and we, can, we might be, we might feel, wow, it's not very promising. That might be a bit suspicious. Are you going to leave it there or are we going to adopt this Barnabas attitude and see something beyond what's on the surface? In the story of David, we've been reading in the last year, haven't we? We see the kind of the verse that sums up God looks at the outward, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Are we going to be like that? And that's our encouragement. One of the encouragement for us today is to be like that, both in our culture and in our activity. We, we, we aspire, don't we, to that kind of restoring faith. A church culture which sees and believes God's masterpieces are everywhere. They're everywhere. Like that picture, they're everywhere. I can't, lots of people won't see them. They'll never see them. But there they are, waiting to be restored, waiting to be brought into all that God has for them. They're not yet finished, and neither are you nor am I. But together, working together, we can bring it out and bring it into all its glory. Be these encouraging, restoration-believing people. Be those people. Why? Because it's who God is. It's what the early church was. It's who Barnabas was. It's how Saul became Paul. Be those people. That's an encouragement to us and to you. Now, I said both in culture and in strategy. There are things that we want to be amongst ourselves, are things that we actually want to do. And that's, that is very much who Barnabas was. So Barnabas was the son of encouragement. That was the culture, as it were. But then he went and looked for Saul. So he both embodied what he did. And he did what he embodied. And we want to be that kind of church too. We want to be a, a church full of an encouragement, 
a restoration spirit, but also a coach that goes and looks for people. And I think you saw the video earlier. We saw it up in Bradley State. It was superb, very helpful to flesh out a little bit of some of the things that we're doing together. We see through city hands. You see, uh, I mean, it's actually quite literally a restoration work. I think we saw even this week there's another project. Go and fix someone's house. Go and restore someone's garden. Go and paint someone's wall. You're doing the things that the Bible's talking about practically and physically. Might not look like the Sistine Chapel. I don't know. Maybe it will. But, no, I've seen some head shake. Maybe it won't. But it will look better than it does now. And the people who live in those homes will be blessed. By who? By God, ultimately. And they might start to believe in a God who restores. As they see him restore something of their homes. Street life happens every week. It's not just, well, there's a problem here in Bristol and we need to feed some people. No, we believe in a restoration God. The gospel is the heart of this work. People come into contact with believers. And like we said at the beginning, there are bigger problems than the fact they don't have food. But you can't address the bigger problems unless you address the other problems first. The Bible also says that to us. Don't just, don't just shout Jesus at people and then leave them in their poverty. Go and help. And that's what street life is doing. Done it every Saturday for years and years and years. But at the heart of it is the belief that God will restore. We've seen that begin to happen. And we're believing that God will do more of that as time passes. We see it through the Bristol Church's night shelter, through Purdy Court, and then through Encounter, which is going to come online in the next couple of months. And you saw the video earlier of the Encounter Camp. In fact, that's where we were not at the Encounter Camp, but the same venue with the elders the last couple of days. And it's a great venue just to get away for a couple of days. And we saw God move upon people who were unlikely, and in some cases unlovely, and unpromising in the world's eyes, and yet God was amongst them. It's absolutely wonderful to see. You know, there is, there is a lot at stake for our city and for our country right now. Our country is cynical and divided. It is. And there's not a lot of hope out there that it could be restored. How could it happen? We're going to talk about politics in a few weeks and other aspects of our life together. This is the only way. It's through Jesus. It's the only way. This is the only thing that gets to the very heart, the original problem, the broken relationship between God and people. This is the only way. But listen, in the midst of the cynicism and the moaning, and the complaining, and the chanting, and the banner waving, this is my charge to you. Be shameless encouragers in a cynical world. Just do it. Be those people. Why? Because God lives in you, and he's a God of restoration, a God of encouragement. That's who he is. Be those shining lights. Be that salt and light in this world. That's one way you could do it even this week. Say, I'm, I, I'm, done, with the, I'm done with that stuff. Say, we need to deal with it. But in terms of where my heart is, it's all about him, this restoring God. Be that shameless encourager in a cynical world. But it begins somewhere, doesn't it? This all starts somewhere. We're going to come to communion in a moment. It starts really there. It starts by recognizing that you were hopeless and helpless, without hope and without God, that you were dead in your sins. 
You see, if you think you're quite good, if you think you're, you could be quite helpful, if that's your starting place, ultimately you become a Pharisee. You become full of your own goodness, your own achievements, and very quickly that turns to pride, which separates you from God and from people. But if you start with recognizing, oh, I had nothing, I had nothing and I am nothing, I need, I need Jesus. And you might have been a believer, I'm doubting many of you have been a believer as long as I have, but some of you will have been longer, most of you not. But listen, I need him today as much as, as a four-year-old boy, when I say, I, I need you. If we can start there, we have a chance to reach the city. We have a chance to reach them. Because we start with humility. We start with a recognition. I, I am in need of the blood of Jesus, of the broken body of Jesus. I, I don't have any righteousness of my own. I've got none. But he's offering all of it at his cost. He's paying. And saying, now, now would you please offer that to others? If we start there, we've got a chance to reach the city, to see the restoration power of God work, to see the Paul and the Barnabases come out of Bristol. Why not? Why wouldn't it be here? The hidden gems of Bristol, where are they? They're on the streets, they're in the homes. We don't know where they are. Barnabas believed and went and looked for them when I found him, brought him into the life of the church, and the history of the church was never the same. Let's be those kind of people, starting, starting with a recognition, I need Jesus. I need him. I need him. The forgiveness of God. I need the power of God. I need the presence of God. I need the word of God. I need all this. Absolutely. That's why we're doing this week after week. Don't you ever forget. Don't get like, Saul, before his conversion, don't be like a Pharisee. I think, I'm, I'm pretty good, thank you. No, I need this. I need him. And as we start there, we then see, wow, if he could do that with me, why not others? I was helpless and hopeless. And so they, they, they're all helpless and hopeless. And that's what he does. That's what we should do with him. Let's stand together.